Well, good evening. Welcome to another episode of Views from the 215. Again, you can reach us, the Anti-Violence Partnership, at 2000 Hamilton Street, Suite 204, Philadelphia, PA, 19130. Our phone number is 215-567-6776. Once again, that's the Anti-Violence Partnership. My name is Kareem Brown, a youth counselor here, and my co-host. I'm Michael Romney, VIP coordinator. And we are here with two special guests today. Uh, I will let them introduce themselves. My name is Ambry Kirby. And you are from what agency? Um, so I work with Meriki. I am a therapeutic staff support um, employee, and I am currently working in somewhere in Philadelphia. North Philadelphia. North Philadelphia. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. So our, our next guest, introduce yourself. Hi, my name is Tanisha Davis. I'm also with Marikey, and I'm also a therapeutic staff support. And I am working at Mead Elementary School, and I do an after-summer uh, program at the Athletic Recreation on North 26th Street. Okay, so say the name of your company again. Marikey. Marikey. And what kind of agency exactly is Marikey? It's, it's a multifaceted <laughs> agency. It uh, has child behavior health. It right. has... Um. <laughs> so let me so let me ask you this question. That's okay. That's fine. So what interests you guys, or I guess what did you, did you have a specific interest in working in this kind of field, or you know, was it other reasons? Okay. So um, I graduated with my undergraduate degree from Rutgers University. Mm -hmm. Um, I double majored in psychology and English. I have a minor in women and gender studies. Okay. Um, initially, so when I was going through school, I wanted to finish getting my master's degree um, and go on to work as a sex and relationship therapist and get my PhD. Um, I watched the Khalif Browder story on Netflix and uh, it changed my whole perspective on things. So mm. going from there, you know, so I still have my undergrad degree. I'm going to get my MA in the fall. Okay. Um, but like, so that changed my whole view on what it was that I wanted to do. So after I saw that, I feel like it made a drastic impact on me. Mm -hmm. And then I believed that I wanted to work in the prison system, um, like in the psychiatric ward and, you know, helping the inmates and stuff, you know, they, they don't get the attention they need sometimes, you know, especially when it comes to suicide and like issues that happen there. Um, they're just not giving me the necessary attention. So transitioning from thinking I wanted to do that and then, you know, looking for a job in my field after I got done undergraduate school. Um, I started working in the low SES communities and realized that the problem could probably be penetrated from an early age so that the trajectory didn't end up at 17 year old in, in Rikers Island. Right. right. Um, so I have a very lengthy background. Um, I started off in pharmacy and corporate American management. I've worked in um, many uh, financial institutions. I worked in corporate America, and I was a manager at a Rite Aid, to be specific. And I noticed there was a deficit in young people who couldn't count, couldn't fill out money orders, and that kind of fueled me to go back to school for something else. Mm -hmm. I ended up going to Community College of Allegheny County in Pittsburgh, and I obtained my degree in social work, my under uh, AS in social work and liberal arts. Mm -hmm. 
And then I moved here two years ago and was kind of thrown into <laughs> this uh, lifestyle, this human service field. Um, started off at Wincote Elementary as assistant group supervisor, worked my way up to group supervisor. I don't really want to be a teacher. I like what I do at Meriki, um, teaching social emotional development to young boys of color specifically because I feel like they don't have an outlet, they don't have a voice, and they grow up to be these um, angry men. You know, um, mm -hmm. they feel like they don't have a voice, you know, uh, also within the culture itself and society. So that's kind of how I ended up in my field now. Okay. Okay. Um, since you guys been working in this field, has there been anything that you have seen among your clients that has either shocked or surprised you? Uh, you mean the environment or within themselves? Either, either one. The either environment, one. the kids... You know. I mean, mostly the kids, um, they're very receptive, you know, of people who are genuine, regardless of how they, you know, carry themselves and um, seemingly different than them. They're very receptive as long as you show them respect and mm -hmm. kind of try to relate. Like, I had to learn some uh, slang, like, drawling. And, <laughs> <laughs> okay. and every time I say it, they laugh at me. So, um, but nonetheless, they're very apathetic. Um, I was, because I actually started researching, like, you know, how old they're viewed in the schools, and only 30% of students are ranked apathetic, and that's not true. Yeah, they might fight all day, but they're like brothers and sisters at the end of the day. If you come mm. outside crying, yeah, I might be mad at you for eating my Cheerios, but, mm. you know, I want to see what's going on with you. Like, they actually have each other's back, and they're very caring. And, you know, just the the image that's painted of these kids, like, they have no feelings, and they're the sweetest children ever. They share you know, their food and, you know, obviously with the stigmas that, oh, they're poor, they're very selfish and they're not. They even share with me, uh, walk up <laughs> any day, here, you want this, Miss Tanisha? Mm -hmm. And it's like, no, you know. So, you know, just some of those stigmas that are associated with them because of where they live, you know, kind of taken aback by, even though I lived in those areas, I'm very well, you know, but I kind of didn't, even though I grew up in those areas, I didn't have the same experiences because I was only a child for 13 years. I was, I'm from California. My father was in the Navy, so I lived in the DMV. Um, there's a lot of experiences I've had that the other kids in the community didn't. Mm -hmm. So it kind of, you know, was a little different on my behalf. Gotcha. You want to speak um, to that? Yeah, <clears throat> sure. So... Mm -hmm. I'm not really sure. So when I did work in, so I worked at Mead Elementary for a short period of time before the kids transitioned into summer camp. Um, while I was there, I, I noticed how some of the teachers, you know, um, aren't really willing to go the extra mile to help a lot of the kids in the classroom. So I'm not sure where this, um, like, lack of, like, communication with the teachers and the kids come from or, like, the unwillingness from the teachers to help the students come from either because... So elementary school, like, I think the kids even start in, like, what, like, kindergarten or first grade or something and goes all the way up to eight. Yeah. These kids are not being taught, like, the way they need to be taught. So I worked um, closely with a third grader and a fifth grader in the elementary school. And uh, there are just a lot of kids that don't understand, you know, what they're doing. Like, they'll be sitting down, just, like, working on a certain subject and either it be, like, something they're supposed to be reading or, like, you know, math problems. Um... They don't understand it. They raise their hand. They ask for help. They're not given the time or the attention that they need. Um, the kid doesn't understand what they're doing. The teacher yells at the child instead of assisting it further. Um, and, like, that's an issue. So right there, 
in third grade when you're raising your hand asking your teacher for help, even with an IEP in place and the teacher doesn't help you, you then get frustrated. The teacher yells at you and you're kicked out of the classroom. Mm. So the, the tie is severed between you and like the education that you're supposed to be receiving at school and like what's actually happening there. Right. And I think that um, goes to a larger point that, um, you know, once you have that educational trauma, that disconnect that <clears throat> a child may have um, continues throughout the, you know, educational life course. Right. So, I mean, it's reflective in the music a lot of times when you hear like rap songs or what have you. There's always some critical point where a teacher or some type of interaction that a youth may have um, that they're giving an account of, there's always some type of, you know, traumatic experience as it pertains to being in school. And I always thought that was an interesting point uh, moving forward and how just our communities look at schools and, you know, how the composition of that school is, who's in that school, who's mm -hmm. teaching our kids. So all of those things are um, interesting. I think for me, um, just getting into the work, um, I was supposed to be a teacher, um, essentially, and um, what I found myself more interested in is the, you know, the environmental stuff that they were going through, social issues, um, right. food insecurity, housing instability, those things, the non-academic barriers to their success in the classroom were of uh, more importance to me. And I always wondered um, whether or not those things were the extra mile that people say the teachers go. I'm like, I don't think it's the extra mile. That you don't you, think what's the extra mile? Um, I don't think, you know, having a sound understanding of the population that you work with and what are some of the potential issues that these people, you know, may be experiencing, especially black and Latino youth. I don't think having a sound understanding of that and trying your best to deal with those things as a teacher, you know, I think it benefits your ability to teach. You know, it helps as opposed to, well, this is the bar that I'm going to measure these kids by. Right. And if they don't reach it, they don't reach it. You know, so I never even thought of those things as going the extra mile. No, I agree. Um, the cultural competency definitely component is definitely lacking in the schools. I mean, you have predominantly Caucasian teachers who, you know, just want to put it off at their home life as that's where they're experiencing trauma and they're bringing it into school. But I had a third grade client when he would give me a hard time, I would call his mother. And his mother, just the sound of me calling his mom, he would break down in tears. So it's not always like the home life. Like, I feel like it's the schools. The kids aren't respected. They're being emotionally stunted because um, they have, like, the specific school I'm speaking of, they have a, a ticket system. And if you acquire enough tickets, you could buy certain events and things of that nature. Well, the children are allowed, certain children are allowed to go automatically. Behavioral children are closely monitored so they you know and if they do earn to go they're sent back to the classroom with no explanation like you made us earn this and now you're taking it back so there's emotional abuse right there no one's mm -hmm. explaining to them you know or addressing you know the reasoning behind why they couldn't go or you know well this behavior here is why you couldn't go like there's no you know counseling or guidance counselors you I mean, staff, they put their hands on the kids. I've mm -hmm. seen kids grip up. I've seen kids, you know, and I mean, I get it. You know, you have a whole school who have behaviors, doors slamming, running, kicking, screaming, but it's a lot of the educators. I mean, there's one third grade um, teacher that I was, because I've been in the school since December. I'm one of the longest TSS in the school. Hmm. Yes. 
because it's a high turnover rate because it is overwhelming. Like, even though I'm there for three kids, I have the whole entire school and I live right in the middle of Philly. Mm -hmm. So, you know, not only do they see me in the community, they see me within their school. So they come to me, you know, I'm the one checking the report cards. Let me see report cards. Let me, you know, just reinforcing why they're in school, you know, because I feel like having a face that supports them is more important than anything. But the teachers, they automatically say, oh, I just think something's going on at home. That's why his behavior changed. No, the well, Let me ask you this question before I, I wanted to bring up a larger issue. Um, you mentioned that you're living in uh, the communities of some of the kids that you serve. How do you think that impacts? I know you mentioned, talked about it a little bit, but how do you think or what impact do you think that have on the children that you deal with? And also, do you think if maybe even 40% of the teachers in the school also lived in the same community, what how, how do you think that would make a difference? I mean, because it shows that you're actually there. Like, you understand their circumstances. You're not there judging them, and you're genuinely there for them. You know, I live at 19th and Burks, and a lot of me and the students, we walk home together because we live in the same direction. They know I go to Temple. They know I'm in psychology. And, you know, but that, and then I also am able to bring that to them, too. Um, I had a sixth-grade client, and a group of girls in his class didn't know that journalism was a major they were like you want to come in my blog and I was like sure I'll be in your blog their, their mm -hmm. video blog and so we start talking about that and it's just that they see that I can relate to them I'm not judging them because one I live in a neighborhood um as well and we just connect because I am living kind of like they're living right you know so now I know you mentioned before that you grew up in uh, some communities that were a little bit different than some of the kids that you service now. Um, so see, understanding where you were raised at and now working in this area, what are some of the biggest, I guess, differences or things that you notice? Well, for starters, so the cleanliness of the schools. Like, I'm not sure if this is a big deal or anything, but Jesus Christ. So one day I was in the lunchroom and there were four mice running around in the broad daylight and I stood on the table of the lunch on the of the lunch table and everyone thought it was funny. Did you everyone scream? What do you think? Of course I screamed. <laughs> everyone was laughing like she can tell you like I was like she was there and everyone's like they won't hurt you. You don't have to be afraid of them. They're afraid of you. It was 12 o'clock in the afternoon. There are mice running around the cafeteria where the kids are being served their food. What? Wow. Um, okay. The schools are also, like, falling apart, man. Like, there are holes that the, the, the mice come out of and stuff. Um, crazy. The whole, the kids go to school. They're served breakfast and they're served lunch. And, like, that was new to me, too. So, like, they go to school and literally... I guess in their homeroom classes, they're all, like, breakfast is distributed. Mm -hmm. um, that was dramatic. But, I mean, I guess it's necessary, you know? Um, yeah. yeah. That's it, really. Okay. Well, the major differences. And then to even say, you know, um, six, through, six through eight were able to eat in the auditorium because they went through metal detectors. Yeah, I worked with them. So... They, so you said the sixth through eighth graders can't eat in the cafeteria. They did eat in oh, the cafeteria. It's just but they had to go through metal detectors. Oh, okay, right. Yeah, they had to go through the metal detector. So I was just informing her of that. Right. 
um, uh -huh. but the middle school, elementary school, they don't. They only want. Yeah, that's dramatic. I mean, I think like some of the environmental stuff that you talked about, um, it's been you know well documented in the news, just the conditions of the schools. And um, on a larger issue, on a macro side of things, just the funding. You know, we're talking about adequate resources, um, like books and pencils and teachers and staff. And it's mm -hmm. like, you know, most of our kids go to school in eight, upwards of 80 to 100-year-old buildings. Um, and just being able to, who's going to foot those repairs? So, you know, I'm generally critical of, like, government as it pertains to that. And I just don't think that there's a focus... You know, we're the largest school district in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. We're also one of the poorest school okay. districts, if not the poorest school district, um, you know, in the Commonwealth, which happens to be predominantly black and Latino. And I don't think that it's no coincidence that those two things correlate with each other. Um, I've always thought that there's some intentionality there, even though, like, people don't necessarily admit it. So, you know, like people who do the work that we do, um, you know, it's always like an uphill thing, you know. But I wanted to speak specifically to, you know, just your workers, uh, TSS workers, um, just being able to look at, I, like, what do you think about diagnoses? And do you believe our kids are overdiagnosed or do you believe that they're underdiagnosed? Like, how do you, where are your current stances on like labeling uh, black and Latino kids along the uh, spectrum? I feel like they just label them to label them, um, you know, and then try to push meds as if it's a... A pill for every ill, if you will. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, that, that that's the end-all, be-all, but they're not taking in the account of, you know, what are we doing to aid them, especially in these environments. And as my job, like, when I first started, I was like, TSS work is a joke. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. you know, and I say it's a joke in the sense of, yeah, even though this one client is being rehabilitated, um, they are also, and it's still in their same environment where they're surviving. So just because I teach you the skills you need, you're going to revert back to the other way of life because you need to survive, mm -hmm. you know. And it's there's not enough TSS. There's not enough male TSS. And I feel like that's just the general diagnosis because a lot of, if you look at the diagnosis, a lot of diagnoses are just ADHD or mm -hmm. ODD, oppositional defiant disorder. Mood disorders. Mm -hmm. And like those that. are the basics. It's nothing extra. There's nothing else. And then, oh, we'll give them a pill. But now you're giving them a pill. They give a lot of my kids PTSD disorder things. Okay. And like, I had a five-year-old who had post-traumatic stress disorder and they were giving her pills. Five years old at preschool. But I think the present, I think, you know, coming from some of these communities, I do think the presence of PTSD is there. I'm not sure in just given the trauma experiences of a lot of kids, um, shootings, um, violence, things of that sort. Um, I think the presence is there, but I think. But the way to deal with it is like giving, yeah. you give a five-year-old a pill <laughs> because she was sexually abused. Right. How is that solving it? Exactly. Issues? No, I agree. I agree. Um, I think our kids are, you know, overstimulated, um, overmedicated, over everything. So I, I, I pretty much do understand that much. So, so like, to switch gears a little bit, um, currently um, in the country is a, a, a big Me Too movement going on, uh, and rightfully so. 
Um, but, you know, our work, we deal uh, mainly with um, uh, young males. And we also know that young males are often uh, sexually abused as well. And they don't have ways or have vehicles, just like any victims necessarily, to express what happened to them. Um, R. Kelly recently... Um, who I'm not trying to classify as a victim, but, you know, I'm just bringing it up for the conversation purposes. Uh, he put out a 19-minute song uh, that's called I Admit, where he goes through a, a series of events in his life, different uh, controversies throughout the years. And in one of the lines, he says, Now I admit a family member touched me, from a child to the age of 14, while I laid asleep, took my virginity. So scared to say something, so I just put the blame on me. Now, here I am, and trying my best to be honest. Um, so, we also know, you know, within this field that we work in, he's had a series of, like I said, controversies based on deviant or so-called deviant sexual behavior and uh for him to now admit that he had been molested from a child to the age of 14 um do you believe some of the behaviors that we see among some of the young men um some of that is based on um you know molestation and and other kind of things that people yeah. can't express you know and so sts as workers is, are there vehicles set up in any kind of way that your clients can maybe kind of talk about or, you know, express some of these things? Or have you witnessed anything like that? I, well, I just want to say no. Um, they can't even talk about everyday issues. So right. let alone try to open up about something that serious, that intimate, mm -hmm. that personal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And now maybe as I've, you know, my client one of my clients actually towards the end of the school year was reported to DHS because he had a inappropriate behavior, mm -hmm. um, sexual behavior with other young ladies. And, you know, I've noticed the little things that he would do, you know, and I'm very, you know, hands on with my clients. So like I might give him a hug mm -hmm. and this one particular time I hugged him and he fixed himself and I was like, okay, mm -hmm. so that's mm -hmm. out of the limits, you right. know, but um, other than that, they don't have the spaces. No, they don't have that. They don't even have counselors, to be honest. Like the counselors, I feel like they're just extra staff, you know, to staff support in the schools because they don't have enough teachers or educators or even faculty to assist them, you know, with dealing with all the kids. But as sexual abuse, I believe that is very prevalent. And, you know, a lot of my, and personally, like a lot of my work geared to young men is because I feel like. There's a lot of these things for women in place. You know, we have the numbers. We have even, you know, feminists, white feminists, black feminists. We all kind of rally together at some point. But for black men, there's still not that space. And they still have to wear this mask that everything's okay because of the cultural and societal expectation, personally. And I think that speaks to the point. I think Terry Crews was in the news uh, recently. He's been like a, a male advocate for um, sexual abuse. And he spoke about one of his accounts that he had experienced at like an award show or a party mm -hmm. or something to that effect. Mm -hmm. And, you know, being that vulnerable and open about his experience with uh, that type of trauma and just being able to speak to um, the environment where 
you're not, especially in Hollywood, where you're not encouraged to come forward, um, you know, very high profile people and all of these things. And he and, and the funny thing is how it overlapped race. So he knew that he was a big um, African-American male. And if, you know, um, if he would act a certain way, how that would be perceived in, you know, the general public. And I think I remember on Instagram, like 50 Cent kind of, you know, really laid into him about that. And, you know, definitely going on to like some of the like patriarchal values or what have you, but just the overall lack of understanding and the overall lack of, I guess, overall discussion that, you know, black males have around, you know, sexual abuse. Um, Even conversations we've had about um, R. Kelly, you know, just in general, I think, you know, we all had our ideas and our understandings about him, but he previously talked about inappropriate sexual behavior, um, the presence of inappropriate sexual behavior at the hands of adults during his childhood and adolescence. And, you know, this is about his second or third time coming forward about that presence and how it manifests itself in his own individual behavior. And so I think there needs to be larger conversations um, just with young men on how to treat, <laughs> you know, how to treat young women or, you know, how to treat, you know, just had monitoring their interactions and their relations with the opposite sex is very important. Um, and it's good to have people to facilitate the conversation. Um, yeah, I think, you know, I also did TSS work and I will often um, see young men being very aggressive, not only to the opposite sex, but just with other students in general. Um, but it, it was it was specifically troubling when I would see uh, some of those young men, the level of aggression towards females, you know, was that really like a level among kids that age that I had not really seen before. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know if, well, I guess in some ways, you know, the culture is shifting in different ways and it seemed like within the inner city, you know, obviously it's shifting towards, uh, a certain, um, uh, level, I guess, or degeneracy. Um, I mean, you also have to take a, you know, um, I know we weren't on, on, you know, recording before, but, you know, it's Mike said normalcy with just being in their homes. Mm-hmm. And even in my experiences, I have, you know, these conversations where men are frustrated that the women are more independent now, you know. And, I mean, it's everything's just systemic, you know, and it's propaganda for division. Let, let, me, let me ask you this question, right? <laughs> so so even when, when you say that, right, <clears throat> women are more independent, right? <laughs> Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Or what is, yeah, what 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 do you think okay. about that? So I feel like maybe this is both a good and a bad thing. So I don't know if it's the whole women being more independent thing or like, you know, like the whole laws thing and like, you know, like the government being harder on a black man and then the, the black woman having to step in in the household and, and, and take care of the task and fulfill these duties that a man is supposed to. So making the money, making sure the kids are fed, sending the kids to school, doing all of these things while their husband is in jail or, like, incarcerated for something. Um, yeah, I feel like that, that that has a lot to do with the whole women being more independent thing, especially in the black community, because who else has got to do it? There is not a man there. I mean, that is definitely relevant. But even before all of the 
this. Yeah, men don't have, you know, access to jobs as the way women do. But, you know, like the women's suffrage, that was geared to Caucasian women, white women. And then, you know, when in the 70s, when women needed support, black women, particularly, we got, mm-hmm. and we as a whole, we, you know, started using government assistance. Men, black men couldn't be in the household, you know. And so now that's a divide because we're like, well, we can't have you around. So it pushes out the black man and the black family. And then now as things progress, I guess, if you want to call that progressive um you know now women are just like we have to do it because there's too many things against the black men you know and then the black men they have their emotional you know instabilities and you know insecurities and things which comes into the household where we're trying to raise kids and we're trying to uplift ourselves and sometimes it's it's a lot because there aren't these spaces for black men so you know societally it's been a you know um agenda you know from even before incarceration rates, you know, there's a great migration and things like that. Black men couldn't get work. They couldn't find jobs. And if they did, it was contractual jobs, you know, like construction during the summer, working on the railroads and things like that. So it's just trying so, to... So would you think, would you say that you see, based off your work, you see a direct correlation between uh, it being a less amount of fully functional black men and the degeneracy of the community and some of the children that you work with? Yeah, definitely. Um, <laughs> okay. Yeah, All definitely. Right. All right. Like, I, my fault. So, I, I mean, I think out of, I think out of problems, you know, back in the day that had clear, you know, I guess, problem causers and victims, I think, New problems grow out of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of the stuff that we see, you know, like you'll have a situation where historically, like you'll have a mandate for African-American males to be out of the home. Then because of that, you know, sometimes black men make allowances for how they treat or how they, you know, move throughout the world. And they make an allowance for somebody not being there in their life. You know, not really you know, unpacking that and seeing, you know, how much that doesn't make sense. And I can speak to my own personal experience. Like, my father's not a bad father, and we always been close. But I remember, you know, just, um, you know, the relationship that he and my mother had, being them being, not being together, I can remember him saying to me, you know, well, I didn't have my dad. Mm-hmm. You know, as opposed to saying, like, yeah, but I have, you know, I have you, so you not having your dad it's amazing how that, you know, how they rely on that. And it, it, I always found that to be very troubling. And, you know, let, me, let me ask you this ahead. question, right? So you saying that your dad telling you that he did not have a father, you found that troubling? No, I found it troubling as a line. I always found it troubling as a line of, a, a line of logic or a line of reason where and it wasn't even something like whatever I was going through as a young man mm-hmm. that I'm that I felt like I needed him that mm-hmm. he thought that he was able to go through something similar in his life without mm-hmm. his dad mm-hmm. so I should be able to replicate that also. Mm-hmm. So you saying because I'm just trying to flush this out all the way mm-hmm. right because sometimes I say that to my son. Um so but I say it to him 
because I want him to understand that even by having me raising him is a certain level of he he has something that I did not have. Mm-hmm. And so he should be grateful and responsible more for the stuff he got and his ability to um, achieve in life. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like I, I don't... I won't, I won't accept less from you mm-hmm. because you got more than I had and you should go beyond me. Right. So that's why I say it. But I'm no, so like, like just to, so for me, just to clarify, right? So I don't, like, I get that. You know, I very well understand, but not from the vantage point that your father was absentee. If your father, say, had been in the military or say that your father had been sick or died or something like that, Mm -hmm. and then you could speak to, you know, your ability to, you know, know, overcome that adverse situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But not at at the place where your dad was, you know, absentee, not at the point in which you're not absent for you to even bring that up. So it doesn't even fit you because you're not absent. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like. You, the continuum, like, it's not two dissimilar situations where, you know, grandpa wasn't around. I'm around, but I'm going to tell you that grandpa not around, wasn't around for me. But you're around now. Mm-hmm. So that doesn't apply to me. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's where I, I think that was, where's the uh, the critique is. Um, again, coming out of a situation, new problems come out of old situations. So a lot of the things that I'll, and we had these conversations all the time, like, a lot of things that we could fairly put the blame on systems and institutions, you know, they've grown into a pattern of normalcy. Problems have grown to become normal out of situ- um, systemic things that people um, find as a default. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you have mass incarceration taking black men out of the homes or what have you, and then men relying on that as a means to not be the type of fathers that they should be. That's problematic for me. Right. And I, I mean, I agree. I mean, because we already know that there are systemic, you know, um, agendas in place. But it's now that we're aware, we need to, you know, because I'm not even one to go into history. Like, I mean, I know history just because it's like an innate thing that's been around. But I don't go and study history because my thing is, what are we going to do now? You know, because we are so culturally aware of things that are taking place and we're always quick to go to history like I did with the division between the black, you know, men and women. But at the same time, like, what are we doing? Because we are conscious of this, you know, just like you said, your father, he brought that up. And I can see where it's frustrating, but it's like, you know, that trauma that's inflicted from it. You know, because you are trying to figure it out. You know, people don't come with manuals. Parents, just because their mm-hmm. parents are still human. You know, but it's just how can, you know, as a community, because it's so divisive, you know, within our community, like, to allow men to be like, you know, like a safe space. Like, recently I went to a conference for fathers and sons. And it was so empowering. It was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen, having fathers and sons in classrooms and just you know, interacting and showing each other you can still learn at any age, and it's, it's a gr- life's a growing process, right. you know, and there was no excuses, there was black mentors, there was everything in place, and there's actually organizations in Philadelphia um, that allow those spaces for black men to go and just kind of have a brother's day, you know, where you could bring your sons and your uncles and uh, nephews mm-hmm. <laughs> into the space and just kind of 
dialogue and talk about things that they experience. All right, so uh, I guess we get ready to close out. Is there any final thoughts or anything else you guys want to add about our conversation? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. I, so Amberie, being that you're not, um, you know, really familiar with a lot of this adversity within, the, you know, city, um, how does it, how will this impact your job? Like, how, how will you work better with your young males? I mean, everything I do will just be meaningful. Like, it always has been and it always will be for me to, you know, impact someone's life and be able to change it. Even if I'm just that one person, you know, that helped them or steer them into a pathway where they understood that, you know, what they were doing is important and, and their feelings are important and education is important. And, you know, I mean, cause I, you know, you are, cause when I seen you, I'm not gonna lie. I was like, mm, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you know, but I mean, that was what, but then getting to know you and even me, I'm not really a friendly person. So, you know, connecting with you in the relationship that we've had built outside of school, outside of our profession is beautiful. So, you know, I definitely know that you're going to do a great job. I see the work you do now, and I'm so proud to even be like, that's my friend. All right. You want to say something? You know, uh, just keep moving forward with the kids. Um, Just try to be as empathetic as possible. and you know, always take I always take kid behavior in context because I think um, you know it's probably the clearest way for me to be able to provide help for the kids, man, and just come from a genuine place of love and wanting them to improve and be better. Okay, all right, thanks for listening. Until next time, peace.